0: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: I am Megan Gilger, and welcome to the Fresh Exchange podcast. First of all, I have to thank you guys for all of your love and support for the first episode. It just really blew me away because when you start something of any kind, you just, I've learned to just have very low expectations for anything on the internet these days and what will be the response. All of you sharing and rating and everything, subscribing, it has meant so much to me to know that this is kind of the right path that we're supposed to go on. And it just really felt special to see that. And I'm just so excited to jump into this next episode, knowing how excited you guys are about this. So that said, this episode will be different than last week's episode, which was all about intention setting and everything. This episode is going to be about the garden and my recap. What we're going to do is I'm going to recap 2020 and not the year, (laughs) but the actual garden and my experiences and everything. I'll kind of give some preface about how I'm doing that and everything as well. But then we will also go into what I'm planning for 2021, what I see ahead and how my intention for 2021 is affecting my garden planning. And for those of you who have asked, I am also going to be discussing how I plan, like what the system is, because it's seems to me that you guys really want to understand that, and I get it. I don't know if it will solve a lot of problems because it's a little nebulous and a little bit... I don't even know the word. We'll see how you guys like it, and then I'm excited to get your messages and have conversations about it. Before we jump in, though... I have gotten a lot of questions and I feel like this is probably the right space to address it, but a lot of questions about seed shortages and you guys asking about that. If you're not aware of the gardening world, you may be surprised to hear something like this, but in the gardening world right now, even for farmers, there are significant seed shortages, which is kind of a tricky word to say, (laughs) but what is happening? And maybe you guys are like, what? Oh my gosh, just one more thing in 2020. 2021. Um but if you weren't aware back in 2020 when the pandemic hit people kind of went nuts about, you know, toilet paper but in America but it also seeds. Everybody decided to start a garden. We had this strong desire to be self-sufficient with our own food sources, which is amazing. And I was so excited to see so many of you go after that. But what has resulted is the demand has been so high that keeping things in stock, even this year, I mean, that last year was hard, but this year we're seeing the same problem, if not at a higher level, because people are kind of just like buying everything up. And on top of that, we still have COVID safety restrictions on shipping and workplace and everything like that. So it becomes harder to get things to us. And a lot of companies like Baker Creek are having to shut down their website. Well, what do we do about that? Um, That's tricky. I think if you are somebody who is a beginner gardener, I wouldn't be looking at getting seeds this year. I would focus on instead going to your local nursery or a local farm. Many farms will sell starts. It's a great way for them to make money. And if you don't want to go through that adventure of starting seeds, don't worry about it. The things that you might want to get seeds for if you are a beginner are like sugar snap peas, which are a great, easy beginner thing to grow from seed and lettuces. Those are like the two things that I would say buy those. I don't, recommend doing a lot of other things as a beginner. Um, Maybe if you want to do some zinnias or sunflowers, those are also easy from seed, but everything else is very simple to purchase as a start from your local farm or nursery. And so I would highly suggest that. Now, if you're more of an advanced gardener, I would suggest buying the varieties that you really want. Like I bought certain flowers that I really wanted and from Florida Farms, and I bought some other varieties of tomatoes that I really like that I enjoy growing. And such as like Blue Beauty, Cherokee Purple, and I'm trying to remember the other one that I picked up this year, oh, Sun Gold. And those ones always sell out anyways in a normal year. So I just immediately knew I wanted those. I have a lot of seeds and I'm sure some of us that are in a more advanced gardening situation, we have a lot of seeds available to us already. And seeds last, like they kind of diminish in germination over a period of time. But if you have seeds from last year, they're still good. But if you find you have an abundance of them, I see this as an opportunity to make a connection, to build community. And in our community that will be launching in March, we will have a section for seed exchange. So you if you find that you have a lot of sugar snaps, awesome. Put them up on there and say I I'm looking for x, you know, maybe a tomato seed or maybe a certain type of basil. And then somebody you guys can exchange them. And you know what's great about that? Is now you've made a connection with somebody that maybe has grown that variety before and can give you feedback about what they know about that variety. And then you're learning from each other. And before you know it, you have a buddy. (laughs) Anytime we're in abundance, particularly in gardening and food, I simply see it as just an opportunity for a connection and community building. So that's what I think that we should be thinking about. Don't be hoarding. Don't go crazy. Think about the larger picture of how this can be a positive. And if you're concerned about a variety or you don't have something that you want to maybe adjust and grow something else this year, it's always an opportunity. Don't look at it as a frightening thing because it'll be fine. I promise. (laughs) So we can look towards opportunity in these times of scarcity and demand so to speak, that we're in right now. So I hope that gives you guys a little bit of peace of mind. And because I see it as that. Anyways, we're going to get jumping right in here because this is a big topic and I don't want to take too much of your time because I value that you guys are here and I know that I don't like I don't have the time to listen to super long podcasts so I want to be really concise with you and give you good information and good insight but also like not rush through this at the same time so we're going to jump in now you may be wondering as I start this how am I <laughs> recouping all this information in my head well some of it I do keep mentally which isn't a good practice but some of it is also stuff that I keep in a notebook. Now I have a garden journal and on our community website, I will be posting a sheet that will help guide your own gardening journal yourself for that year. And how I see garden journals aren't necessarily maybe as just like a normal farmer would in the sense that if you go to any farm, I'm sure you could ask the farmer, like, what does your notebook look like? (laughs) And every farmer will pull out a book that they hold that catalogs every single one of their plants that they put in that year, basically not plants individually, but the plant variety that they put in. And when they put it in, anything that happened during the time that it was in the ground and like severe weather of any kind, like drought, stuff like that. And then when they actually harvest it and then took it out of the ground, those are usually the keys across the board. Every farmer is different and how they keep track of it and what how they do that. But for the most part, every single farm I've ever been on, like every farmer can do that. And why they do that is because they can see over a period of time and what is working and what is not. And they keep track of the company they got the seeds from, all sorts of things. Like anyone who gardens a lot, (laughs) small or big, or farms has one of these. The difference is, is when I'm looking at this, I'm looking at my garden in a bigger way. You guys know that I have more of like a deeper connection with how I do this. And I see the garden as a timestamp in my, in my year, you know, It marks the height, like I can mark the height of the sugar snaps by the growth of my own children. And I'm at that unique phase in life where they grow so dramatically in just a few months, just like my sugar snaps do. I can mark even, for instance, in 2020, I can mark how the pandemic was going. I can mark how my anxiety was in March and how I put that into opening, clearing a field with Mike and we just felt so lost. We just, you know, went for it. I can mark so many different things that happened in that year by my journal. And so I think when we're talking about our garden journal, it's not just about marking what we planted, but it's marking about the own growth of ourselves and what we perceived in our family, what we perceived in the world. Even in 2020, to think back to the uprisings of racial inequality and what we experienced and how I processed so much of that when I was clearing beds to plant new things. What a beautiful analogy for that. So I mark everything along the lines of how the garden is moving. And even now in my mind, like it's a new year, it's a new thing. So I have a new slate for my garden to begin with. And so I can figure out what I'm going to bring into that. All that to say, that's where a lot of these notes are coming from. I will help walk you through that process within our community, particularly. And we'll talk about it some here, but a lot of it will be happening in our community because I think it's really a big part of helping people connect and understand that we're all kind of going through the same things, not just in our garden, but in our lives. And the garden is simply a place that we can go through processing that. So what happened in 2020's garden over at the Fresh Exchange? (laughs) I if you are new here you i'm just going to set the stage a little bit we live on a hill where we have 10 acres total, but we really farm slash garden about an acre and the rest of it's pretty wild. We have a lot of like wild blackberries and some wild apple trees. We have mulberries and there's all these different things that are going on in the wild part of our acreage. But for the most part, what we utilize and are working on ourselves every year is about an acre, acre and a half. We have a lot of different things going on in if you don't know much about where we live like We live roughly like as the crow flies, like I'm terrible with measurements. Um, I would say between 10 10 to 15 miles to Lake Michigan. And what that means is when you're not like right on the water, like on a large body of water, like a great lake, you are affected differently. Like it's much, it's always cooler next to the lake at the beginning of the summer, but warmer in the winter. And it's always cooler at our house in the winter. And we get a lot more snow than somebody that's right next to the lake. So, So, the microclimates are drastic on this little peninsula that we live on. And even though, and even like into Traverse City, which is the main town, it's lower than we are. So, like, even the snow amounts we get are different. It's crazy. So, I was like, okay, we live on this hill. Like, we have this one microclimate. The biggest lesson I learned in 2020 is that that is not true. And we will go into that. But first of all, how I learned that was because we put in a new field in March. I was planning on doing it anyways and then the pandemic just like pushed it in because it was like, what else am I gonna do this year? I'm crazy, by the way, because I learned not to take on two large projects in a year where I also have a baby and a child at home constantly and trying to work and everything else processing the world. So not only did we decide to do the garden that is 30 foot by 50 foot roughly and put in a fence with a gate because we have a lot of predators, we also decided to put in a chicken coop slash a palace <laughs> for 13 chickens, which turned out to be such a gift in the long run. But I have to tell you that don't bite off more than you can chew. And I can say that as somebody who just experienced that, it's, it was a lot. And I think about wrecked Mike and I this summer. So I don't know why we decided to do all that other than there was a pandemic and we were just didn't know where else to put our energy, <laughs> which is funny to think about because we had a lot of places to put our energy. (laughs) But... So that said, we we did all that this year. And I when I was going through this, I thought that lower garden would have a very similar climate to the upper garden. And you got to understand the lower garden that's large and not in raised beds in the ground, we had to rebuild that soil last year, which was a ton of work. I have a whole blog post about that if you're interested and I'll link to it in the show notes. But we also had to, or what I didn't realize was that the amount of like water runoff that would be coming down there, the amount of sun that area got, like it gets sun in the summer from pretty much like 6am to 10pm because we're on a hill. There isn't many trees around it. It is just full on sun. The other thing is, is that our upper garden, which I had gardened for two years prior to us doing this, gets sun from base, like from 12 to about 10. So it's pretty shaded for the most part, which is wonderful. But when I was planning my garden, I was really experimenting last year because I was experimenting with like, how do tomatoes grow here? How do tomatoes grow there? How do tomatoes grow down here? And can I put different companion plantings around them to deter pests and which ones work better? Well, I learned a ton in that process. But I will say that 2020 was a guessing year. It was a lot of guessing. And that may surprise you guys, because I think what you guys saw from Instagram may be like, wow, she's like got so much happening. It's so beautiful, but which it was, but there was so many experiments going on, which while we were also building this chicken coop. It was kind of overwhelming, but I'm gonna highlight the things that I feel like are the most important to look back at and to learn from. So let's go through some of those. The biggest thing I learned was with the lower garden getting so much sun, it is definitely the best place to plant my tomatoes and my peppers and any hot weather plants because up in the upper garden, because of the amount of shade and with the temperatures the way they are in Northern Michigan, like we don't really... Get many days above ninety, maybe like two weeks total in the whole year. So to really grow tomatoes, you really either need a greenhouse or you need to have a lot of sun. So the ones in the upper garden just did not produce like the ones in the lower garden. And the more shade they got, the less production. Same thing with tomato or er, with peppers. So our best producers were down in our lower garden. So I learned that that I have these basically almost three microclimates. And it all has to do with sun exposure. The other thing I learned with tomatoes was that last year I experimented with starting them earlier. Our cherries thrived with that. I did blueberry tomatoes and cherry tomatoes. And they were so cool, like these indigo and red and purple colored heirlooms. And they were so yummy and the kids loved them. But my Blue Beauties and any other larger tomato, just, they died. And I hate admitting that because in my previous years, I did so well with them. and But I had planted them and seeded them later. So I did them in March instead of February. They just were like, I'm done. You didn't get me in the ground fast enough. I'm just done. This is not going to work. <laughs> and they died even after I got them in the ground, which is fine. It, it happens. It was an experiment. I can either find a lot of failure in that, or I can look at it as a chance to just grow and learn and be like, well, that didn't work. So we're not doing that again. The other thing I did this year was I did my first squash. I haven't done zucchini, butternut, pumpkins, any of that ever up here. So this was my first year. We just didn't have the space before and the soil enrichment. I felt like wasn't good enough. But now that we had this larger field, I was like, let's do it. We're going to have a pumpkin patch. So I grew three types of pumpkins and I told myself if I get one pumpkin, I'm successful. We got about eight, or five to eight somewhere. I can't remember. We gave away some of them. Pie pumpkins, which were really easy to grow. And I very much suggest them. And then we got two larger pumpkins, like decorative pumpkins. You can eat them, but they're like the Cinderella ones. And they did really well. They were beautiful, but that was all we got because the squash borers took over. We did have a lot of success with our butternut. The vine borers don't like butternut squash. So we never had vine problems. The vine borers took over all our pumpkins, acorn squash, like all of that. We still had a really good... Production. I feel a lot of success in that, considering what happened. And but I'm questioning whether I want to do that again. And whenever you have vine borers, you should never plant them back in the same space, which you should be rotating your crops anyways. So I probably won't do the same squash again this year. I'm probably gonna move them to another area. I don't know. I, I'm still figuring that one out. But the butternut squash were successful compared to everything else, and so I'm definitely gonna do that again. And we still are eating them, which is great. I did learn that and water spraying them. It's all you need and it works great. The other thing I did as a big experiment was companion planting. And when we talk about companion planting, we have to understand where this idea came from because it is not something I made up. It is not something even your local farmer made up. These are ideas that come from the Native Americans. These ideas were also adapted by African-Americans that were enslaved and brought to the U.S. and farmed plantations. Many of them did these things, practiced these things and then they were taken by many white farmers and we now know them because of that. And so we have to understand where some of these ideas came from and acknowledge that because it's really important because these people, particularly the Native Americans, had a contact with the natural world and an understanding and an awareness that we are now having to relearn. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to acknowledge when we're talking about this idea. And I by no means can take any ownership over that. Companion planting is a really fun thing and a really awesome way to play in nature, but it also has a long history, particularly like we think about one of the most popular ones is three sisters. We will talk more about companion planting, but three sisters is when you have corn, runner beans, and squash. And they all work together from a nutrient standpoint and what they pull out of the soil and what they put back into the soil and how they aerate the soil and then how they support each other physically. It's a really beautiful idea. And then how they combine in dishes. So you might see this conversation coming up whenever you see corn, squash, and beans combined. What I did this year and why I love companion planting is because it helps us utilize nature to do the work for us. And all we have to do is just listen and watch and take note. And usually it's going to fix and adjust itself. Now it is not foolproof. And I will tell you why it's not foolproof. Because for instance, one of the companion planting things that I did, these are also can be called guilds. You'll see that in a permaculture context. And what you're doing is you're utilizing all these plants. You have an anchor plant, which for me, I was using tomatoes, for instance. We'll just use that as my example because that was one of the big ones I was playing with this year. And I placed basil, carrots, borage, and alliums. With my tomatoes, they're all planted around each other. The tomato goes up above everything and shades the other things. And what happens is is that the borage and the alliums, they and the basil and even marigolds, I had marigolds in there too, they all work together to keep away the most destructive bug from tomato plant, which is tomato hornworm. They're huge. They are crazy. And they will demolish your tomato plant in a minute. Like it is overnight. You can lose your whole tomato plant. The amount that that bug can consume is crazy. So And they're always an issue, especially when we talk about planting in rows and monoculture. We're going to see these problems. And when we plant that way, we then need to apply some sort of insecticide. And you can, even if they're natural, quote unquote, the most natural thing is to utilize what nature's already given us, which are these plants. And it, like I said, it is not foolproof. I still found one this year, but there was one and that one plant did not have any borage or basil with it. But I also had friends that said they did that same idea and they still got a few. So it's not foolproof, but I always have this belief that if nature did that, there's a reason. And we have to trust that bigger picture of nature and just kind of chalk it up to like, we're human. We are also part of nature and these things are part of nature. So we're just going to Live in that world of just trusting what we can't understand sometimes. But I did find that this system worked incredibly well and I planned to implement it again. And the plans are so beautiful and fun seeing them work together. It's just beautiful. You can look up more of this. I have some of my Pinterest that. I have saved in reading about, but basically anytime you see companion planting, guilds, those words are technically what I'm talking about here. And that's kind of that idea of polyculture and combining a varying amount of plants to create a ecosystem that allows for ideal growth for everybody. Let's go into my biggest surprises. First of all, if you are planting a chicken coop, I need to tell you in all honesty, it's going to take a very, very long time. And it is a lot of work, especially if you you're not just buying a little kit and putting it together. If you're doing that, you probably will be done within a few weeks. If you're building anything from the ground up, even if it's relatively small, plan on at least a month. For us, it took like three, almost four. Actually, it might've been four and we're not even completely done yet. And I was very surprised by the amount of work it took in them to get materials and the cost of materials in the middle of the pandemic and the demand on materials. So much work, guys. And it, it really was like almost a breaking point this year, like where we were like, forget it. We're gonna give the chickens away. Like I, we both were just like going crazy with this thing. So that surprised me. I did not think it was gonna take that long. I think that was one of the biggest ones. The other one was... Is also how well compost works and somebody made a note in an Instagram message where like if you're in a climate where you can grow year round, compost may not be enough, but adding quality compost continually may be really necessary for you like once a month as you're growing if you grow year round. Whereas for us, I add it sometimes in the spring or in the fall and usually it's enough and my chickens do a lot of work now too and we'll see the outcome of that this year, which is pretty exciting in our lower garden. I definitely say like you don't need a ton when it comes to fertilizer. You can play a lot of games, but usually crop rotation and compost are the best ways for you to accomplish really good soil. Another big surprise was that our fruit trees took. Like they just did so much better than I anticipated. And we have four different varieties. We have three different apples, two different pear varieties and different sizes. Eight out of 10 of them survived. I feel a lot of success for that. <laughs> we probably could have done a better water job watering them, but they were very forgiving. And we only lost one to drought and one to a mower. So it could be worse. The thing that was like the greatest surprise, but also like the greatest joy. I felt like though was our staggered sunflower wall that, and I'm actually adding and doing a similar plan this year, but I staggered them out. So like we would start having sunflowers in middle July all the way to September. And it was just like the most beautiful thing. It brought in so many birds when the heads were empty and it just, it was so special. So I started some of them inside and then some of them in the ground. And that staggered growth was just really beautiful to see them come and go in this like beautiful rhythm. It was like watching an orchestra or something now let's go to the biggest failures like i said squash was like a success and a failure i learned a lot so i don't really deem it a total failure i just deem it as a moment to learn from watering this is the biggest thing we're getting into this year we had a lot of downy mildew this year which we hadn't had in the past and a lot of it seemed to come from the water and how we were spraying everything from above so i'm interested to see we're adding drip lines into our lower garden this year and a drip line system in the open beds in the upper garden the raised beds uh will be just watered from above, but we didn't have downy mildew in that area. So I'm kind of interested to see what happens this year when we go from below instead of on top. We'll be spending most of May doing that. And another big failure was my blue beauties failing, even though I tried something new. So I kind of already told you that. And then lastly was my lettuces. We had a really weird spring and early summer and the weather was like really hot and then super cold. And every single one of my lettuces bolted and I could not, even my arugula, which is usually even in the shadiest spot is one of our best producers, not this year. It was terrible. (laughs) I was just like racking my brain for what am I doing wrong? I almost bought shade cloth, like all this stuff. And eventually I was just like, I'm going back to one of my all-time favorites and went back to the Rocky Top Blend from Baker Creek and it worked really well. We had beautiful, wonderful lettuce all the way through September and then it finally bolted. But that is everything that happened in 2020 and I know it's a big recap, but we're gonna just quickly fly through this second portion Of like 2021, and then finish up here with how I'm planning this as well. So, as you heard on my failures, my failures are kind of guiding where I'm going next. So, we're gonna be focusing in May and putting in that new irrigation system, and we're not digging anything, it's not like we're just laying drip lines basically, and then we'll take them up in the fall and be done. We're just gonna give that a go, give it a try this year, see how that all works out. And then we also will be adding compost, working on building up a few like our raised beds need some fresh dirt put in them just because some of it's come out and they're This is their third year growing for us. They need some rebuilding. So we're going to give them a little more dirt. So we'll invest some money there. We're going to invest some money in plants and things like that. And I'll go over that here in just a second. But we'll also be kind of opening up the field where the chicken coop originally was going to go. We're going to be adding some compost there. We're going to be adding an area that will all be herbs and flowers. And I have a plan of how to keep the deer out of it without putting up a fence and everything. It's an experiment. It's a place space. Not that I need any more of that. The other thing we're going to be doing is, and this is my first year doing it, is I'm waiting for the first, the next big thaw, which I would assume would be either at the end of February or beginning of March. And I purchased poly tunnels, and then probably mid to late April planting. So I am starting some seedlings inside that will go out there under those tunnels that will be kept warm and protected from the weather that we will have that is totally erratic in late April and beginning of May. So that's a big different thing. It doesn't sound very big, but it is a big thing. I've never grown that way. And I've always wanted to, and I've seen farmer friends do it, but I want to try it on a small scale. So it'll be a fun experiment. I hope you guys will enjoy watching that happen on Instagram. And then as the year proceeds, we will, you know, start planting all of our warm veggie things down in that lower field, those things like the tomatoes, the peppers, the basil, carrots, like things like that. But then we will also be putting in a lot of stuff in mid-May up in the upper garden. And that is like spring items that are seeded or direct planted. And eventually those summer plants will also replace all the things that are in the polytunnels. The polytunnels will come off once the weather is more consistent. And then once those things get to a point of like, okay, we're reaching a consistent, you <laughs> You know, 50 degrees at night, 75 during the day, pull out all those plants and they will be done. They'll be added to the compost or given to the chickens, which will eventually be compost. The one question people are asking me a lot ever since the podcast last week is that what about this word wild? Like what I'm talking about sounds so like calculated and planned. Well, we definitely are gonna be opening up this new area. And like I said, it's all about play, and that's its own thing, is it's just gonna allow us to kind of try some new plants to put in some things, but and this is And we can start talking about how I plan my garden, too. But first of all, when we're talking about wild for me and planning the garden this year, I just I really have this vision and belief that my job this year on this hill is to set a set a foundation for a garden that just feels like a beautiful haven that celebrates the native species and things like that, that just feel wild and less like about being contained and controlled. And this last year I read, and I'm still kind of finishing up the final parts of it because I go back and forth on books, but I read and highly suggest reading The Brainy Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And in it, in the very intro, she talks about the difference between the idea of creation, the creation story, and how it's told in Native American culture and how it's told in Western culture. And I grew up probably like most of you understanding creation from the biblical standpoint of Adam and Eve, and that's what she's referring to. And she talks about how, in some way, this divide with nature happened in those stories for us as humans. In the Native American culture, this idea of the woman and nature is one and the same. She is part of cultivating and caring and just not controlling nature, not fearing nature. Uh, she is nature. And the whole story is in there. And I'm not going to tell it to you because you. I really suggest you read it yourself. But in Western culture, much of many of us know that you know Eve is the one that has the downfall. She eats the apple, the apple is poisonous, and it's the original sin. And that kind of creates this relationship, whereas women, our connection to nature is now evil. We need to distance ourselves, control. Nature. And I didn't realize how deeply ingrained that had become in my relationship with nature to fear it. But now I'm realizing more and more as a woman that. I have this deeper level of intuition with nature. And I want to create a world on our hill here that the natural world of the ground underneath me is as thankful for my presence as I am for it. And that happens through thinking about, not about like controlling to keep nature out. So a lot of the things we're gonna be adding are like service berries and some other wild berries, elderflower, like all these things. And many times people would be like, well, I need to keep the deer away from those. And I need to make sure the turkeys don't come in and um, to keep bears away. And some of that's true. There are natural ways to do that with herbs. There's lots of ways we can do that. But I do not see these things that I'm planting as something that I am going to harvest from. What I am going to harvest is the fact that nature will come and enjoy it. And when the birds come and the deer come and all of that come in and they enjoy what we have on this land, which they will no matter what I do, because it's nature, then in turn we'll have the symbiotic relationship and there will be a giving that happens with their presence as equally as they take. And there's a new food source. There's a new opportunity. I just, I want to create that. And I want to dive into that deeper this year in my garden and to bring in a lot of native species and not worry about what we will take from them personally and worry more about how it's feeding the land that we're on. Because when we showed up here, it was a hill covered in juniper bushes that were dried out, tons of invasive level of sumac, which I want to keep some of it, but we don't want as much as there were there was. And tons of these bracken ferns and star of ast, like there are so many invasive species, the autumn olive, and some of them are good, everything in moderation. But when they've taken over and sucked out the life from the other things, we have to figure out how to bring in some of that now. And so I'm wanting to create this world of a wild garden, like a forest level of a garden and bringing all these things together in tune with each other. So it's going to be a couple of years of lot of work in terms of research and understanding and planting and trying. and But I see it, and this is where we can get into how I perceive the garden in general, that the deeper we become in tune with the natural world and with what we're growing and the plants that are there, the more in tune we come with ourselves and our connection to the greater world. But also like it starts to become, it's kind of like, I, <laughs> I say this when I garden, it's all about intuition. And sometimes that's more painful than other times. And I think about it kind of like when we start painting or we start playing music, it's hard when you start something because you don't know it, it doesn't feel easy. It feels, you, the practice is forced. And then at some point it starts flowing and it starts happening. And before you know it, it's like you're surfing. It's like you're just floating on the waves and it doesn't take effort. Now when I'm planting my garden and I get stuck, I close my eyes and I start painting that picture in my head of what will it look like in July and August. And when I see a certain flower, maybe it's purple. I then go down and like research, what are some native purple flowering plants? Or if I am thinking about a tomato and I'm like, okay, I see this tomato and it's climbing over an arch. What type of tomatoes are best for that? And as I do that, I start learning more and more and more. And as a result, I know what to put there every year a little more. And before I know it, like these companion plants start coming into play and this picture becomes more and more beautiful, almost like you're adding pieces to an orchestra. And they each get their part to play. When I'm thinking about how I'm gardening, I'm thinking about the plant research itself, but I'm also thinking about how do I want to feel as much as I want it to feed me, like physically and nourish me, but also what is the greater part that it plays in the natural world? Because I want as many varieties as possible because the more varieties we have, the more it's good for the bees, the butterflies, the birds, the deer, the air, everything. And the more variety we're experiencing, which is better for our own health. So that's how I plan the garden. It sounds crazy. And sure, you could chalk it up to like permaculture or, you know, you could say that. I just encourage people continually to just get to know the plants. Don't see it as like a one size fits all. You'll learn your land. How I garden here is different than I garden in another place. You know, even like when we had a house miles away, I garden differently here. And some of that's knowledge. Some of that's also how this place works where that we're at so i can give you advice but ultimately it's going to take the showing up and the work to eventually figure out how to float through it and where it becomes like this just really natural flow i hope to kind of help encourage you to find that space in yourself and also to just as many of you are women that as women We become more and more connected to the intuition that's in ourselves to be one with nature, to see us less as being needing to control it and more about just being communing with it and how we can cultivate it right alongside what it already naturally does. That's my greatest hope. And next week with that note, we will be jumping into one of my favorite topics, and that is talking about how to not just survive winter, but to thrive in it. And this is important because we are in the depths of it right now. And I just think that not just in ourselves, but culturally. And we talked about this in last week's pod in the beginning, but we're gonna really dive into it because you guys had some great questions and I just wanna go into it. So I'm very excited about that. But there is a blog post that is connected to everything we just talked about and you guys can kind of get the high notes from that as well as like suggestions and stuff as well. Thank you so much for being here today and for chatting with me and listening and for giving me your time. It means so much. So if you loved this, share with your friends, subscribe. I would love that. It means so much. So I am very excited for next week. We'll see you out there, friends.